All right, Luke chapter 2. All right, we'll, we'll put them back up as we, as we go, but I want to go ahead and get started in our, our, uh, our passage this morning. It says this, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this is the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was his child. And while they were there, time came for her to, for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was angel, there with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom He has pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known, saying what had happened to the shepherds. Let me go back, I got confused there. Made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God, for they had heard and seen as it has been told them. Amen. What a story. What a story. It doesn't have to just be read in, in December, does it? And it's, it's still just as refreshing and new, as familiar as it may be to all of us. What a, what a great story that is. As we unpack it this morning, we're going to see uh, the glories of, uh, that God has set for us in, this, in His Word this morning. Now, now, Luke did not spare us, as you see in the beginning. He didn't spare us any of the historical details and the historical context as he told us that he was going to do from the very beginning. In fact, uh, 2,000 years later, we can read these details and we can almost exactly pinpoint the time when Jesus was born as well as exactly where Jesus was born. Remarkable, right? That no matter what, 2,000 years later, to to nobody parents, to uh, in a small town, there he was born. One of the first details that he, he gives us is the the historical context of when surrounding the birth of Jesus, and that is, he, he gives us who is the, the emperor of Rome, and that is Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar, was, Caesar Augustus was one of the most important Roman emperors in all the history of the Roman Empire. He was one of the most important uh, 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 emperors of all the Roman emperors. He was perhaps maybe the, the most powerful human being ever to live before Jesus was born. Right? He, was, he had more power and, and, and greater authority than, than guys like Alexander the Great, Cyrus, Artaxerxes, Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, maybe even Solomon, David, Saul, Pharaoh. Caesar Augustus ruled with absolute authority over the whole entire known world that spanned from Asia all the way into Europe and even throughout North Africa. And they... He, they ruled, Romans ruled for, over, for thousands of years. And they would conquer anyone that, that they would come across. Now Caesar Augustus, his, his real name was Octavian. His real name was Octavian and, and he ruled. And he was one of the first uh, emperors of Rome that actually ruled the entire 
the entire uh, empire, and he ruled from 30 B.C. to 14 A.D. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. Right? We've heard of we've heard of Julius Caesar. Thank you so much. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, um, he he claimed his power by defeating Antony and Cleopatra. Right? All these movie figures, you know, we've always seen. Uh, he he defeated them and he claimed his throne. And when he gained power, uh, he gained it with great strength and, and and character of his leadership. He was a really strong leader, and and that's why he was able to do so many things that he was uh, that he did. Thank you. Uh, he built the empire, he built the buildings, he made Rome what it is today, or what we know Rome as it is, uh, as, we, as we know it is today. He set up a massive system of centralized government. He re- regulated trade and commerce throughout the empire, which strengthened the whole empire. He, he strengthened the military. And throughout, the whole entire, uh, throughout his whole entire reign, even though they had such a strong military, they were at peace. They were at relative peace. In fact, that time, and, and that time even continued after his reign, it became known as Pax Roma, Rome at peace. And when he was given the title Augustus, when he became Caesar, that, that word was a, or was a title of deity. That meant holy. That meant revered. So this began with him, with, with the Caesar Augustus, began the emperor worship as being deity. In fact, they would say, Caesar Augustus Dominus et Deus, Holy Lord and God, is what they would call him. He was their savior. He was a strong leader. And this is really significant for us to understand at this particular point in history, Because when this term of God, holy, complete, absolute authority, was given to the emperor, many of our brothers and sisters in the first century church suffered because they would not bow the knee to a false, holy Lord and God. But Caesar Augustus brought peace to the area through his leadership. But it wasn't peace through being kind, it was peace by bludgeoned submission of every foe that stood against them. There was peace, but it was a dark peace. It's the kind of, it's the kind of peace that, 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 that Hitler would bring. No one could ever say anything against the emperor or the empire without having to look over their shoulder. So Caesar's power and his, his arm of authority stretched out as far as he could. And so we see here in our passage that it even stretched even to the tiny village of Nazareth that would affect even Joseph to get up and have to leave Nazareth and go to Bethlehem. He consolidated his empire by introducing this new taxation so everybody had to be counted. Everybody had to be counted so I knew how much, we would know how much each person would have to pay. So here's Joseph knowing that this is what he needs to do. But he's got another problem. His betrothed wife, Mary, is like nine months pregnant. That's a problem. Right? That's, that's, that's a problem when you have an 80-mile journey on dusty roads with a woman who is eight and a half to nine months pregnant. Right? Not, not fun. Right? For those who have been pregnant... You know, when you hit like the seventh month mark, you want to do nothing, right? And you beg for mercy that this baby would come. And so, but what was, what was Joseph to do? What was, what was Joseph to do? He was to care for his wife. He was instructed by the angel of the Lord to care for his, his betrothed and to, and to lead her. And he wasn't going to leave, leave, leave her back in Nazareth to be, to be all alone but he wasn't going to go against the state. So he gathered her up, he trusted in the Lord, and they went on their journey. And they went on their journey 80 miles, now if, if all to, to, to Bethlehem, 
Now, maybe if our, if our little nativity scenes are correct, maybe she got to ride a donkey. But, like, really, that's not that big of an upgrade. If you've ever ridden any kind of beast, it'll get you to point A to point B, but it kind of beats you up on the way. Traveling dusty roads, wondering every step, would she make it in time? Could she? Could she, could she have this baby being so far from family and so far from home? And as verse 6 and 7 tells us, what, they, what most likely was going to happen is exactly what happened. That this baby was born in Bethlehem in the small village, not their home. And in this small village was filled with travelers as we would expect filled with travelers from all over, coming back to the city of David to be registered so that they can be obedient to the Roman Empire. And so there was no room at the end. Right, we've heard that before. No room at the end. There's no, no room despite the, the urgency of, the, of her pregnancy, despite the, the urgency of going into labor. The only room that was for them was, was the courtyard the common courtyard area. Now, we, we got visions of a, you know, like a stable and stalls and, and, and maybe even a, a cave, but, but inns back then were not like the Motel 6, right? The inn, innkeeper, most likely all that they provided for their people that came was they provided a, a fire for them to cook on and they provide a place where they, could, where they can put their animals and a place where they can also some food to feed their animals. But besides that, that was really all the innkeeper could, could do. But everything was completely full. And here is Mary, here is Joseph, completely all alone. And here they are having this baby. Having this baby all alone. Now, I can't imagine that. As, as, the, as the, you know, been through that process in the hospital and so thankful for the nurses and the doctors that were there, all I was was a spectator and a cheerleader. But from this perspective, I was reading this going, dude, Joseph was a hero. How did he do that? Of course, Mary's awesome too. But what a, wow, all alone. Right, it wasn't a nice stable with fresh hay. It was dark. It was cold. It was lonely. Brothers and sisters, it was scandalous for the Son of God to be born as he was. I mean, could, could there be any humble of means? Could there be any worse or lower chances or prospects for anybody to be born in than the Son of God? He was not born as a prince. He was not born in the, the homes of Caesar or in Jerusalem, but he was born as a, as a pauper. It was in that small village that he was, he was born. But notice to everyone... His, historically, the only reason why Jesus was born in Bethlehem was because of Caesar Augustus, his, 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 his imperial decree, as he was pretending to be God, he made this decree and everybody went. So historically, we see that that's why he was born there. Yet it was no coincidence that Caesar made that decree. It was no coincidence that Caesar would impose such a decree on the whole entire empire, forcing millions and millions of people to go to a place where maybe they've never been, but a place of their ancestry. They weren't there just to have to be registered. They were there by God's sovereign decree. A decree that was, that was weightier, greater, and way before Caesar could even come up with that idea that I believe God decreed in the mind of Caesar Augustus. God taking men and using them as pawns for his will. This powerful empire, emperor, one of the greatest leaders of all time in Roman history, what a pawn in the hand of God. God who is, who is not just powerful and great, but God who is omnipotent and glorious, fulfilling the prophecy that he told his people that the Son of God would be born in the town of David in the city of Bethlehem. And it happened. Jesus Christ, 
born in the town of Bethlehem, birth as our Savior. And in the birth of Christ, in the birth of our Savior, we see his, not only His sovereign control over all things, but also on display is His sovereign love. And His sovereign love shown in the Incarnation. In the Incarnation. So who did God choose then to reveal the birth of the Son of God to all the world? Who was it? Who, who was it? Where, where should he go? Right? He should go to Rome. He should go to, he should go to Jerusalem. He should go to some greater cities. Maybe Jerusalem where the Jewish people could see the Messiah and worship him. I mean, wouldn't if the angels you know, showed up there, wouldn't the people of Jerusalem just be like, hey, let's worship him? But where does God, but where does God go? Where does God send his angels? To the most exact opposite place, we would think. But yet it shouldn't be so it shouldn't be a surprise, considering Luke chapter one. That God took the greatest of all news, all the, the greatest news in all the universe, and He gave it to shepherds. Shepherds that were in the middle of nowhere, near a little town that was in the middle of nowhere, Bethlehem. You couldn't get further away from the people and the places that matter. Now, all we really know much about shepherds is, is kind of what we see in the cute nativity plays as well, right? They're usually the kids you don't want speaking and giving lines, but, but they're really cute, so you make them be a shepherd, right? Uh, and, and, and yet, the Bible, or historically, in, in the first century, the shepherds were not known to be the greatest of people. They weren't known, they weren't known to be the, the cutest of all people. In fact, they were shepherds and put out into the fields for a reason because they were seen to be people who, who, who could not be trusted but only with sheep, the dumbest animals alive. They could only be trusted with, with sheep. They were known to be so untrustworthy. They had a horrible reputation, known to be liars and thieves and con artists. In fact, shepherds weren't even allowed to give testimony in court because of their reputation. And yet, this is where God took the greatest of all news, to shepherds. Good news of great joy that will be for all people. Good news. Gospel. Here is the Gospel. To shepherds. Not kings, not princes, not emperors, to shepherds. Here is the good news. Good news that will bring great joy. A Savior has been born, the Christ, the Anointed One of God. And then the angel told him where to find him. Born this day in the city of David. Christ the Lord. And you will find him as a sign wrapped in swatting, swaddling cloths and put in a manger. And, and then just, it just gets even ama more amazing here, mind-blowing. Then, then a multitude of heavenly hosts showed up. Right? This is what I think this is. I think this is every angel showed up. I think heaven emptied. And the angels could do nothing else but sing... Glory to God in the highest. And here are these little shepherds just in awe. And I love their response. They just kind of look at each other, so we should go to Bethlehem, right? Yeah, go to Bethlehem. See what God has done. And then they show up, right? And what do they see? They see a baby and, and just two people, not kings, not, not everyone around and all and worshiping, and they're just joining, but it's just them. It's just them, and they just tell them, God, his angels showed up and told us such marvelous news, such glorious news, so that we could come and see with our own eyes 
what God is doing. And they all wondered and pondered. And I love, what, I love Mary's response here. I think this gives us an insight in where Luke was gathering his information. Mary treasured it. Treasured it. You, you treasure those moments. I'm watching, I'm watching my wife treasure moments with Kate right now. She Mary treasured. What what grace God gave to her again. The treasure, these things, and what God has used her. After all the the, the anguish of, of childbirth, the journey. And she treasured these things. God was giving this good news. The highest. Glory to God in the highest. He was given the greatest and most glorious news. The highest and greatest things of all time. And He was giving them to the lowest of people. The lowest of recipients. To see God's grace through the birth of His Son. And the shepherds, they heard it. They heard this good news. They came to Christ. They saw, they believed, and they went out proclaiming it. This is such good news. The incarnation, when God became man, or I like to describe it even another way, the condescension of Christ, is just so marvelous. It's just so marvelous and yet so humbling. It has humbled and perplexed the greatest of men and the greatest of minds throughout all the ages. Blowing their minds, not just in the, the, the mystery of the union of God becoming man and how it all worked out, but the mind-boggling fact that God, that God who is omnipotent, God who is omnipresent, God who is omniscient, would humble himself in such a way to become a baby to lie in a manger in such humble means. Unable to speak. Unable to care for himself. When has God in all eternity never been able to take care of himself? Never. And here's the incarnation of the Son of God. The greatest and the most mysterious doctrines of the church. Where God literally took on flesh. He didn't just appear to be a man, but He actually took on flesh and blood, was born just like the rest of us. He became limited. He became finite in His understanding just like anyone else. And this is why He was born and He didn't just appear because He needed to be in the same likeness as humanity, be just like us. That although He pre-existed in everything, He was born helpless just like any other newborn baby and child ever to be born. Humble. Humble. I mean, think about it like this. Before Christ was incarnate, He was like a symphony. Multiple sets of instruments. Powerful. Complex. Magnificent. Powerful, yet still can be gentle. Beautiful and rich. But when he became a human, he put aside the symphony and he became a folk tune. He became a bluegrass song. An easy, simple, and short tune. Sounded the same, played the same. He put aside the symphony and played the the folk song. He lost nothing of his deity. He lost nothing of his eternality or his, his perfect character of his attributes and holiness, justice and righteousness, purity and immutability, meaning his unchanging. Yet in his incarnation, the infinite God became finite. And he remained 
and yet still remained infinite. And in doing this, in doing this, the Son, He subjected Himself to, to creation. He subjected Himself to creation in, in its own physical laws of nature that He wrote with all of its ups and downs of life. He would experience what, what, was like, what it was like to be a human, what it was like to develop as a human. He needed to learn reasoning, and he needed to learn language. He could be taught. He could, be, he could learn. He thought, and he taught, and he thought, and he talked like, like a baby. And before he ever talked like a man, he was a baby. He cried when he, when he had needs. One of, the, one of the guys that I was reading and studying this, Harold Best explained it, saying that the only difference between Jesus and us was that Jesus did his learning, growing, and maturing sinlessly and perfect. But this does not mean that he was an instant learner. Can you imagine the humility of the Son of God to be like this? And never, never in all of history has any other religion ever put their deity in such a humble means. In fact, to, to Islam, to Muslims, it's blasphemy. The incarnation is overwhelming. How could God humble himself in these ways? Philippians 2, 5-7 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It's overwhelming, and it puts and faces, makes us face the humility of the Son of God and this, this great display of, of love that is shown in the incarnation of His, of His humility. And of course, we didn't even mention the humble means in which He was born and where He grew up poor as a son of a carpenter. And He was humble, and He emptied Himself and he was born in such ways, poor as a pauper, so that one day we could be rich. So that one day we can be rich in the grace of God and share in his inheritance. Another thing that is so encouraging by the incarnation is this sympathy. We see in the incarnation that it not only shows us the humility of the Son of God, but it also proves to us divine sympathy for us. Consider this. If, his, if in his humanity he was, he was just like us, yet without sin, in his birth, in his growth, in his learning, in pain, in hurts, he alone then is uniquely able to be sympathetic with us. He, he alone is, is, is uniquely able to be sympathetic with us. I'll give you another little music illustration. Sometimes when I'm in my office and I'm practicing uh, uh, music, uh, I'll hit a certain guitar or a, or a certain I mean chord or a certain note on my guitar, and, and I have an, other guitars hanging on the wall, and, and sometimes those guitars will, will resonate the same notes or the same, the same chord, right? This is because the, 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 no, the, you know, the noise is coming out and so, sound and all that stuff, and it reverberates and it makes the strings make, make noise. And so this is called, uh, two pianos are, are really noticeable at it, and, and this is called, uh, when, when this is done, it's called sympathetic resonance. Sympathetic resonance. And in the same way, Christ in his humanity, born just like us, lived just like us in the flesh, in the blood, that when a chord is struck in our humanity, in our, in our weakness, and we, in our fear, pain, suffering, loneliness, grief, sadness, and even joy, it sympathetically resonates in the soul, not soul, but in Christ. How glorious is that? 
There's nothing in our own human experience that, that, that does not resound in Christ's as well. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Why? Because he became like us. He not only has the capacity to sympathize with us in every way, but he truly feels it. Like he just doesn't say, oh, I understand. He truly feels it. He, he just doesn't say, oh, I can imagine how you feel, but he truly feels it. He is sympathetic and understanding because he became like us. And also in his incarnation, he became our Savior. We've seen in his humility and, and with sympathy, but also in incarnation, we, it was necessary for him to be our Savior. This is what the angels told the shepherds. The Savior was born this day in the city of David. It was Christ the Lord. So because of his incarnation and his perfect identification with, with, with humanity, this is how he could save us. This is how he could pay the price. This is how he could become that perfect substitute on our behalf. And is the only man to live a perfect and sinless life. So he alone was uniquely qualified to take on our sins upon himself, becoming sin for us and dying an atoning death for us. This is just another reason why the incarnation is just so glorious. That God humblings himself to become like us in our humanity, becoming sympathetic to our needs and can feel our needs and then to become uniquely able to be our Savior, to bear our sins on the cross. What mercy, what grace, what love. Amazing. So I have a couple things I want to share in light of this good news. In light, of this, in, in light of this good news that was, that was not given to kings and princes and emperors, but given to the lowly. And the good news was the incarnation, the, the, the love of God and displayed of His Son. The angels sang of it. This good news that would bring worship in the highest this good news that would make the lowest worship. What are two things that we can see from this? Here's the first one. That we are like the shepherds. We are like the shepherds in the sense that we are not the kind of people who deserve this love. We are not the kind of people who deserve this love. Yes, you heard me right. You heard me correctly. In fact, no one deserves this love. No one deserves this love. And I think this is one of the, the, the blaring realities of this passage, of where the message went to. It went to the, to the shepherds. But yet even them, they were undeserved. And yet in the human heart, for some reason, we think highly of ourselves in, in such a way that, that we do. That we do deserve something from God. That He does owe us in some way. Whatever it is that we may conjure up in our mind to try to put God in our debt, we try to be the deserving ones. But this passage overwhelmingly tells us that we are not the kind of people who deserve this love. No one deserves this love. 
Now, we all know that there's something wrong with us. I think every American knows that, by the way. I really do. I think it's not, it's not hard to, to watch media and see that we're messed up, that something is wrong, that something has is, is just completely gone wrong. Some of the foolish philosophies of past years that have taught people that we're getting better I think are starting to go by the, by the wayside. They're going the way of the dodo bird. Because humanity just continues to figure out new ways to destroy ourselves. We know there's something wrong. Despite the little tower of babbles of technology and science that we tried to build to convince that we're not. Something's wrong. And we know it. Go to bookstores and you'll see it. You'll see so many different ways. There's markets of billions of dollars being, being spent and being, being bought of this material and books and plans and DVDs and videos on all the many different ways to correct what you think is wrong with you. So whether that may be in, in the way that you look, whether it may be in what you own, or maybe it might be in the way that you even feel about yourself. There's billions of dollars being spent to convince us that this is the way that you fix yourself. Work out. Think better of yourself. Buy something. You need this. And if you have this, your life would be better because this water is really good. Or you need this. Or you... I'm a sucker for Apple junk. And I'm one of those morons that actually watch their little events. And it's amazing to me to hear the language that they use to sell people the same thing that they already own, just a little bit, just maybe a step forward. And they make it sound like this is garbage, but yet this is better which is funny because two years they told me this was the best. And we have created economies on this idea. And the thing about the buying stuff, just like Apple's tapped into and everybody else has tapped into, that, the, that the, as long as we keep coming out with more, and as long as you can get on your phone on Amazon and order whenever you want, we can cover up this brokenness that we all know we have. Or maybe it's the self-esteem. You got past the materialism and it's about self-esteem. That if you just think better of yourself, and so there's books that show and teach, think this way about yourself and then develop habits in your life so that you will do this. The problem with this whole idea of, of think highly of yourself is that you're the one that put yourself in that position and now you're the one that's got to fix it. And every time you put your head down at night, you realize, I didn't do a very good job at that. Just think better of yourself. Christianity, unfortunately, has kind of tapped into this self, uh, uh, self-esteem. And I'm using Christianity really loosely here. It's, tell, it's tapped into that self-esteem idea. That it's not stuff, it's not, it's not necessarily just relationships and things, but it's, but it's God. It's God. It's, it's God loves you. And Jesus loves you. The reason why you don't feel good about yourself is because you, you don't think high things about God loving you. God thinks you're great. And this idea, this, this moral therapeutic deism takes God, sovereign God, omnipotent God, and has totally made him to be a pawn that's there just to make you feel better about yourself. That sin's just subjective. And really, God just wants you to be happy. Another way that Christians try to correct themselves in the brokenness inside is that they, they, they try to live in certain moral ways. They create lists of morality. We, we like to call this religion, right? right? Let's not use that word as it's, a, as it's a negative term because religion is actually a good term. It's just been thrown out there as it's all negative. 
Religion without the gospel is slavery. So we create lists, and you've, you've heard them before, and the don't smokes and the don't drinks. You do those things, you'll be a drunkard. Don't wear these type of clothes. And you know, what have all these lists have done? What have, what have they created? They've created individuals that think that they can control in a way. They can control their flesh. And they don't really deal with the, the real heart issue as the gospel does. The gospel deals with the heart. It transforms within and then changes those things. And that's why it's so dangerous. That's why it's so dangerous to, to, to create for yourself these lists of morality to make yourself feel better. Because it really doesn't deal and address the sin issue. In fact, all it does is it blinds and it deceives us even more. Now, I don't know anybody who would say, I live this way because I'm trying to earn the love of God. Does anybody, anybody ever heard that? People know the lingo. I have been saved by grace. But yet, what's the attitude of their hearts and the attitude of their lives now, truthfully, it comes out pretty easily. But they've been living in self-righteously, devoid of any transformation of the gospel. And discerning heart and discerning mind, it's not hard to spot. But the Bible, on the other hand, tells us a totally different story on what's wrong with humanity. The Bible tells us in, 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 uh, in uh, Ephesians 2, it says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins once you in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So our, our good works, as Isaiah 64, 6 tells us, and all of our works are like filthy rags. So when we come before God with our good things and our righteousness, God says, get those dirty kitchen rags out of my throne room. You're dead. I don't want your junk in my throne room. So we see the problem? The Bible just blows up self-righteousness, doesn't it? It blows up self-esteem. The reason why you don't think high of yourself because you shouldn't think high of yourself. throughout the scripture, we're just exposed to this over and over again. I don't have much time, but, but just, just for example, you know when Moses was at the burning bush, and God tells Moses that he wants him to go into Egypt and let his people go. Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. You know what Moses says? Moses says, who am I, God? I can't do this. I, I can't barely speak right. And you know what God doesn't say? Oh, Moses... No, no, don't talk that way about yourself, Moses. You're, you're a good guy. You're, you're faithful. Look, you're a good dad. You should think highly of yourself. No, he says, you're right. But I am the Lord God. I will let my people go. I am the God of your father. And then there's David. David in Psalm 22, all right, throughout the Psalms. He's always downcast of his soul. Who am I? Psalm 22, 6, David calls himself, but I am a worm. Now does God say, oh, David, we've been through this, David. You're not a worm, buddy. You're not a worm. You're, you're my pal. You're with me. Don't think that way of yourself. If you think better, you would be such a better king and a better father and more faithful you, if you don't think that way. Do you know what God says? You are. But I am the Lord your God. Trust in me. And I'll deliver you. I'll rescue you. I will be your delight. And it's not just those two guys. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. Never does God try to reassure your self-esteem. 
I mean, look at Job. Peter, Paul. Paul said, I'm the, I'm the chief among sinners. I don't deserve God's grace. And yet God, and yet there's God says, yeah, you are. You're nothing, but look to me. So this is the very heart of the gospel that although seems like the, the worst news ever, and outside of Christ and outside of the gospel, it is the worst news ever. And we are literally born dead in our trespasses and sin and that none of us deserve this type of love. What do transgressors who are vile and violent lawbreakers of God deserve? Nothing but the wrath and judgment. And it is at that time and in those moments is when we can see, when we can see and we can begin to delight in God's grace. Second, that even though we are not the kind of people who deserve this kind of love, But in this passage, what we see, God, God sent his salvation, his light into the world, regardless. God sent his salvation by his great love. He sent salvation to his people like us anyways. And that's what our passage teaches us, doesn't it? Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us, that in a while we were still sinners, undeserved of any kind of love, but only wrath, only deserving to be left in our sins, only to be left in feeling the consequence of our sins, and then the final, eternal death because of our sins, that despite that predicament, Despite our position, God sent His Son in love. And He died for us. Despite you. How good news is this? How much good is this? I mean, we'll continue from the Ephesians 2 passage, verses 4 through 10. But God, right? We were dead. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we, we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And you didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You didn't choose it. You didn't run after it. God gave it freely in love. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages... And this is why he's loved us. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. You didn't deserve it. You can't, you can't, get it. You can't earn it. You can't create your lists. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one will boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in him. Brothers and sisters, nothing in this world can compare to this type of glory. Nothing can compare to this kind of salvation. This kind of glory of grace that we get and receive through Christ Jesus our Lord that we now share in because of His great love. And now we also get to rejoice and delight in and glory in and sing and proclaim just as the angels did and the shepherds did and how Mary treasured that night. We get to do that. Oh, how we glory so much in this world. We glory so much in this world things that are passing away. Can we glory in the marvelous reality of God's grace in Christ? That a love that we completely did not deserve, but God sent His salvation 
because of his love so that we could share in such a great glory and so that we could rejoice together and encourage one another and edify one another in that glory. I just had to continue reading Romans 5, verse 10. For if while we, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death. Right? Enemies. Right? This doesn't get any clearer than that. That even while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more. Like, there's more? <laughs> now that we are also reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What a gospel. What good news has been delivered to us what glorious news of reconciliation and redemption that has come to the lowest of lows, us. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word once again. We thank you for sending your son. We thank you for sending him to be born just like us, take on flesh just like us, to live just like us, but yet sinless, we rejoice in such great love. Undeserved, yet you freely gave it by your grace. So I pray now that as we respond to one another, respond with one another, God, that we would encourage one another in how we speak, how we edify one another in the gospel. And may your spirit lead us and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen.